0: Hello, it's Jeff. Just before we get to the show, just a friendly reminder to hit follow or subscribe on your podcast app so it's downloaded and ready to go. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. I want to live at the Blue Hotel. Who wants to have a better relationship, increased pleasure? better sex. We all do, right? And that's why the Blue Hotel podcast was created. I'm Jeff Woods, and our guest this time is a certified sex educator and relationship coach. Her aim is to empower people, help them make authentic and informed choices. Welcome, first of all, Ray Shereshevsky.
1: Thank you for having me on the podcast.
0: You're welcome, and thank you for being here. I guess we should tell people very briefly how we met. It was at Taboo in Toronto last weekend.
1: Three days in a row. It was fantastic. Did you have a good time?
0: I had a pretty good time, yeah, the Blue Hotel booth with my partner, Sharon, and we just sort of hung out and met people, and people seemed to dig that, so we got a lot of followers for that. I'm glad I went, and I'm glad I met you there.
1: I made you come over and look at my dicks.
0: Well, let's start with that. Uh, one of your side hustles is, uh, is uh, uh, dick art. Tell us more.
1: That's correct. My side hustle is I do custom watercolor portraits of the male member. It was inspired by men taking dick pics and sending them to women and women being mostly revolted. So I thought it would be really interesting to take this thing that's about men trying to get women to desire them, paint it using a female eye, and then make it beautiful for women, which is very interesting because women will pass by my booth and go, wow, these are beautiful. And men pass by my booth and either don't make eye contact or try and look for their own penis. So I think I, I accomplished my initial goal. So I do a lot of, uh, I do custom dick portraits. I have some merch. But aside from that, my main hustle is sex education and relationship coaching with a little bit of latex fetish wear, design and pattern drafting on the side.
0: Tell us more about being a graduate in options for sexual health.
1: In the States, you just have Planned Parenthood. Here we have organizations that are uh, officially affiliated with Planned Parenthood. So Toronto has Toronto Planned Parenthood. They're an affiliate. And in Vancouver, there's options. They've been around since the 1970s. They have a very robust sex education certification program where they not only make sure that your information is up to date, they teach you how to keep your information up to date. And then they teach you how to teach that information.
0: You are the person I most want to have on this podcast because to your point about helping people make authentic and informed choices speaks not only education, but who are you and, and make those choices um, based on your authenticity rather than choices based on what?
1: I would say growing up, gender pressure, gender expectations of how you're supposed to behave. People will make choices because they're trying to make their partner happy, which is that's part of being authentic, right? Sometimes your choice is rooted in your partner's happiness and that can still be an authentic choice. But when you're doing it just for your partner and it's causing you anxiety, not an authentic choice anymore. Sometimes we're doing things because we don't know there's another option. It's why I'm so excited about like ethical non-monogamy. People don't know it exists. People don't know that it's not just about being with a partner and having threesomes. There's a whole other way of being and that can be an authentic choice for many, but we don't talk about it. So how can someone make that choice for themselves? So that would be a few examples, just like ignorance, pressure based off of how you were socialized and even just pressure based off of the relationships that you're in. Some people are taught messages by their religion or even just their family cultural values or their friends and the culture that their school had when they were growing up and learning about sex.
0: I thought of a book when I thought of uh, your background and your relationship coach sort of mandates that you've given yourself, The Ethical Slot.
1: So I'm going to start by saying that I am respecting my husband's privacy by not talking about my personal relationships in public settings. Someone wants to come to me privately at a party, we'll have a long conversation But I think uh, it's good to just start by saying there are certain boundaries and agreements. And the agreement my husband and I have come to is that privately I can share what I want. And on a podcast, I'm going to keep it a bit more broad. What I will share is that I've been working or I worked at Oasis Aqua Lounge, the sex club, from the age of, I think, 21 until 29. And I will say that I have lived experience in these different lifestyles. For some people, they see being ethically non-monogamous or polyamorous, if you will, as how they were born. They don't know any other way of being. They can only be happy in a non-monogamous relationship. And then there are other people who they see it maybe as a modality of being in relationship. They can be monogamous. They can be non-monogamous. There's lots of different options for different people. And in those cases, those people would like absolutely be able to flow between different relationship states, maybe closed, maybe open. But for the people who are born polyamorous, we don't have a lot of data one way or another. There's not a lot of research in this, but I would say that about a hundred years ago, we thought being gay was a choice, except for the people who were gay, who knew it wasn't. So when someone says, polyamory is how I am, and this is how I was born, I'm going to err on the side of we're going to believe them, while also leaving space for people who might not have been born polyamorous, to still be able to experience all of the beautiful ways of being in relationship that non-monogamy can offer.
0: Tell me this. Let's talk a little bit about definitions. Non-monogamy, isn't necessarily polyamory. Polyamory suggests some sort of love, does it not? And love and sex can be two different things.
1: Love and sex are absolutely two separate things and two separate feelings. Some people use polyamory as an umbrella term, but most people say polyamory and refer to multiple romantic commitments to people. Versus non-monogamy, which is encompassing both polyamory and people who are swingers, people who are Just looking to explore people who are mostly monogamous but want a threesome every once in a while. People who are allowed to have sex with people outside of their relationship but only only can be romantically involved with each other. It kind of just covers all of that. And while we're at it, while we're here defining terms, a lot of people I think are familiar with ethical non-monogamy. And I've, in my coaching practice, have come across a lot of people who have been very trapped by that word ethical. So I like to use the word consensual non-monogamy.
0: All relationships, whether there's sex involved or not, The relationships we have with our parents, with our children, with our our siblings, with our friends, with our lovers, they're all about negotiating how we want to be treated and how this thing is going to operate. So we agree to how we're going to be together. What are the things we're not going to do in this relationship? What are the things we want to do more of? What are the things our hard knows? I really enjoyed going through some of your posts on Instagram.
1: Share with Ray is the coaching account and Wife Bay Ray is my slutty butt photos with sex education account.
0: Parenting and consent, anatomy of pleasure, kink 101, trauma and kink. What's the first thing that comes to your mind, Ray, when I say porn? Fun.
1: like That's a very broad topic. The funny thing is, I will look at women reading romance novels on the subway or like my friends and they'll be like, I'm reading this romance novel and I'll be like, oh, is it romance or is it porn? And sometimes people give me the weirdest look, like, why would you call a book porn? And I'm like, oh, we all know Tim is porn. Erotic romance novels are porn. Not all porn is about what you're seeing on Pornhub. There's some sort of the ethical porn out there. OnlyFans is what I call shopping local for your porn. Usually people have very polarized opinions, like it's either all good or it's either all bad. And I think that's ridiculous because porn is porn. How you engage with it can be healthy or unhealthy. The way that porn is shaping societal norms can be healthy and unhealthy.
0: If you're a consumer of porn, does not want to discontinue the consumption of porn, but wants to have a healthier relationship to it, what's your advice?
1: Well, I think it depends on how, how they're defining health and unhealthy in this moment. If you're watching porn every time you're jerking off and you can't not use porn, maybe you want to try turning it off once every five times and trying it with just your imagination to retrain your brain. That could be one option. For other people, a healthy interaction could be signing up for OnlyFans and knowing that you're supporting a small business rather than uh, supporting Pornhub's like very fast clicking, um, non-personalized interactions, right? On Pornhub, these are strangers, but on OnlyFans, this is a person. So that's something to consider. For some people, a healthy relationship is ending their OnlyFans subscriptions and going back to Pornhub because they've entered a parasocial relationship with the person that they're with. So I can't give a blanket statement for everyone. I will say that if you are not able to follow through on commitments you've made to people because you're busy watching porn, you can't do your job, that's when we're really entering unhealthy territory. That's when you seek out help. If you just like porn, you just really want to be questioning, are you expecting the people around you to look like that, to act like that, to be like that? Do you think that every girl is secretly a girl next door porn star? Do you think that every man is supposed to have a 10 inch dick? Do you think that trans people are a fetish object instead of people who like live their own lives and are individuals who don't do porn? If you start to view people as objects, that's a sign to maybe scale back on the consumption. Maybe switch to books, switch to audio erotica, switch to things that make you use your imagination instead of that very quick click through like digestible TikTokification of of porn. But if you're not having any of those problems, a little bit of indulging is perfectly fine and natural and normal. We've always made porn Porn dates back to the prehistoric era. Humans want to look at naked people fucking, and that's okay.
0: It's my belief that uh, couples can benefit from talking about and investigating what each other's porn preferences are, because some people will have you believe that women don't watch porn and women aren't into porn like men. And actually, that's not the case at all for many people. Um, but what about the discussion around it? Some people will say, I don't want to know what you do over there, but don't do it around me.
1: Well, I think those people are, com- are used to comparing themselves. They can't know what this person is into without making an, a judgment about themselves. You like to watch this content, therefore you want me to do this for you. You like to watch this content, therefore you actually prefer that and I'm not good enough. And that's the narrative we're telling ourselves. And that's, you know, for those people, if it's healthier for them to not know, that's That's fine. That's great. Um, But I think that like sharing porn preferences can be a great inspiration tool. What are you watching right now? We all go through porn phases, too, where you only want to watch one thing. And then we've got like our top hits saved to a folder. You know what I mean? Just because last week you were watching like big, beautiful women bouncing on a trampoline doesn't mean you care about that this week. So I think it can be a lot of fun and delightful to like see what your partner's watching and watch it together. And like if you're not into it, start blowing them while they're watching the porn, you know, just go down on them while they're watching the porn. (laughs) But I think it can be a really great insight into your partner's desire. And it starts opening up conversations of, do you want to do this or do you just like the fantasy? I love having crushes on people. I think it's really fun. I like when I'm like, oh, I got a crush. I'm going to talk to my crush. If that person were to turn around and say, do you want to go out on a date? I would be horrified. Horrified. I don't want to know what we'd actually be like in a romantic setting. I want to imagine what that is, right? Having crushes is my mental porn. Other people who like to watch really aggressive, hardcore kinky porn I've met, where I'll say things like, oh, that's like some really aggressive stuff. Would you ever want to do that with a partner? They're like, absolutely not. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to treat my partner that way. That's not hot. The fantasy in my mind, the imagination is hot. The reality would be too much work, too much emotional labor, and wouldn't make me feel good about myself.
0: This is great. Yes. What happens in your mind does not have to happen in reality. Some people will live out a non-monogamous experience strictly through fantasy, and they will talk about it, and they will never actually do any of it. And that's one way to move forward as a couple. Exercise the things you're thinking about in an open, communicative way with your partner rather than have this sort of hidden, secretive thought process that you don't share and can't benefit from.
1: Sometimes it, it can just be dirty talk and fantasy. That's fine, too. Although I will say for couples where they start to think, well, let's live this out. What would this look like? But they still want it to be about the fantasy they're building in their head. Hire a sex worker. If you are trying to make a play and you have actors that want, are supposed to do a certain role in the play, that's when you want to hire someone to be that actor for you. That person's professional. We don't want to go to a sex club and try and find someone to fill this like role we've built for them because they are not engaging with the actual person and their own needs and their own wants and their own desires. So if you're there and you're like, we just want to explore, we want to connect, we want to like figure out if we can connect with other people and have this really fun experience and we're actually interested in meeting new people who are interested in what we're interested in. Great. That's also going to take you a lot longer to find someone with that common connection. You want it now, you want it fast, you want the fantasy, porn, sex workers, dirty talk. That's pretty much your like solid three choices.
0: And that really relates back to what I said about there can be a difference in speaking definitions between polyamory and non-monogamy. Uh, Whereas you're not falling in love with this person, this is something that you need to uh, experience with a sex worker, with somebody at a club, with somebody anonymous, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let me ask you this. This is an area that people go to out of fear that the thing they want, if it becomes reality, blows up in their face. And that is she ends up leaving me or he ends up leaving me because they fall for the one that we brought in as a third
1: people only have that thought when they think about opening up, but they don't realize this person can leave you anytime. That kind of insecurity really does manifest when you're in juxtaposition with an actual option of this person leaving you. There is some reality to the fear that they're going to realize that I can't give them this thing and they're going to leave me or they're going to realize this person is better or different and not want what I'm offering anymore. And you know what? That does happen. So it's not a completely irrational fear In fact, none of our fears and worries are irrational. Usually they're just a signal of maybe something that is missing in you that needs to be worked on or missing in your connection that needs to be worked on. Those are things that you can work on, heal from, grow from. That feeling also will go away when you are working on those things. So do I think my partner is going to leave me because I have abandonment issues from my first relationship or my childhood or whatever? Then that's the feeling that you need to heal in yourself. Your partner can absolutely help you with that healing. Do I feel like my partner's going to leave me because they never compliment me and only talk about how attractive they find other people? Okay, maybe there's something to be worked on in the dynamic. But I mean, I can't promise that's not going to happen or not blow up in your face. That's not a promise anyone can make you. What I will say, though, is that when you go into this with intention and care, you're able to grow your bond with this partner in a stronger way because you are learning new skills, new emotional intelligence skills, and new ways of being with each other and You get to explore different aspects of your partner's personality that never would have come up if you hadn't tried doing this.
0: Are there ways forward? How are we going to do this thing? What are we not going to allow each other to do? What are we not going to allow ourselves to do? One of them might be well, we have a threesome and the sleepover is not happening. It's you and me and they leave. They're not here in the morning. Or we're doing it not in our home, or we're doing it at a club, or we're doing it in another city, or we're only doing it on holiday.
1: There's no solid rule that works for every person who's getting involved. And I want to say person because sometimes it's a couple, sometimes it's an individual, sometimes it's whatever permutation. I like to really define the difference between a boundary, a rule, and an agreement. Now, this is my language that I'm using to describe this to people. Other people might use other language to describe that, and that's okay, right? There's no one right way. We all use language. We all mean things. I'm going to clarify. A boundary is something I control for me something that is about my body and something I can choose to do. A rule is something I impose on you. You need to do this for me. An agreement is something that we both come to as a collaborative agreement to try and respect my boundary. I'll give a few examples. I would be very uncomfortable if my partner fell in love with someone else. My boundary is that I just want monogamy. That's a boundary for me. That's fine. It's an I statement. It's how I feel, right? That would be an example. So maybe you could say, okay, My boundary is that they can only love me. And so when I'm defining monogamy, really, I'm just talking about that love. So we are allowed to have sex with other people, but I really want to make sure that they are not going to fall in love with this person. So I want to create some rules, a fence, if you will, around that to make sure that we are preventing love from happening. So what would cause you, my partner, to fall in love with someone? Is it how often you're seeing them? Is it proximity? Is it a feeling you can't control? Okay, Well then, if it's proximity, maybe we are only going to play with people when we're on vacation. Maybe we are only going to make time for dates once a month. And anyone who wants to see you more than that needs to find a different partner. Maybe this is something, right, that we've agreed to and the partner can say, oh, this would be a real factor. So why don't we create some boundaries around that that we can respect? And the way that you build together is that when you and your partner are respecting these agreements, you are building trust. It's not my partner won't let me sleep with you once a week. It's, I respect my partner's boundaries. So we've agreed that I'm going to see you once a month. I like to change my language to be more reflective of the fact that this is, in fact, a choice we made together as a couple. I can't control you and your body. I can't say you're not allowed to fall in love with someone because I can't control that. I can say I'd be incredibly uncomfortable if you fell in love with someone. And if you see that starting to happen, I would like you to tell me right away so we can make decisions about it, so we can determine what's next. That could be the agreement
0: boundaries, rules, and agreements, it's important to have these discussions before jumping in to the deep end, as it were, and maybe read that book, The Ethical Slot, or any number of books. Where else would you point people?
1: I mean, yes, obviously, I would love for people to come find me if they need some support with this, because I can recommend all the books in the world. But there is something to be said for another human being in the room acting as your mediator, teaching you specific skills that are only what you need and not reading a whole book and going, "Okay, I don't know what from this is actually useful to me right now. I do a lot of listening to my clients as they have a discussion and interrupting them and saying, it sounds like you're saying this. Is that what you meant to say? And then being like, no. And I'm like, did you mean to say this? They're like, yes. Right. I do a lot of that with couples who are new to ethical non-monogamy. And I also do a lot of just like helping people figure out what their inner fear script is. And is it them? Is it their partner? How do they talk to their partner about this? How do they do the self-regulation they need to do? What are the tools they can practice? That's all stuff I help people with. And I'm also a big fan of the book Polysecure. So we're going to add that to your book list. Polysecure is all about attachment theory and non-monogamous relationships. And it's fantastic. So as you said, what if you get attached? If you aren't worried about that or want to learn more about how you get attached to people and if it's healthy or not, or what you can learn, Polysecure is the best book
0: for that. Oasis Aqua Lounge, like you said, eight years in the business. What do you think was your greatest takeaway from that experience?
1: You're the first person to ever ask me that question. I have so many stock canned replies to so many of the other ones. My greatest takeaway, well, when I was 21, interacting there was different than when I was closer to 30, right? When I was 21, I started hanging out Oasis. My friends and I would go every Monday for Student Monday. It was like a standing invitation. Me and A bunch of young women would go every Monday together because it was the only place in the city that we could be naked and drink and know that nobody would touch us or do anything bad to us. And it was also the only place in the city that if we weren't feeling confident enough to say no, we could get someone to do it for us, the staff, and they would do it and it wouldn't be awkward and we could go like hide our faces and not make eye contact. It was a really great learning opportunity for both how much I realized that I was feeling disrespected in other spaces. People just felt like they had access to my body, and I thought that that was just something I had to accept, right? You're at a regular bar. Someone's trailing their handle across your lower back just to cross the floor. They're a stranger, right? Why? Why is that acceptable? This space made me really understand what I could want for my own body, and it gave me a great place to practice saying no and a great place to practice actually needing it. Because you knew that it was a safe space to do it. And so when I was 21, my greatest takeaway was all of those very basic consent rules that you hear about, but you get to practice it there because you know it's actually going to be respected.
0: Isn't that ironic, Ray? When you think about it, because people who haven't been to a club like Oasis or any adult club, they might think their their go-to might be, wow, a sex club, that sounds crazy. Is everybody just doing everything to everyone? And, and in, in reality the sort of rules and protocol and respect is much greater in that environment than to your point about going to that club where they're playing, you know, loud music and, or, and whatever the places where people don't necessarily respect and do reach out and touch and do grab your ass and do this thing and do that thing and do speak to you in a way that's, that's neither uh, polite nor respectful.
1: And I mean, when people say, okay, how can I get laid at a sex club? My answer is the same way you would get laid at a regular bar. If you cannot create connection with people at a regular bar to the point where you get a number or can take them home with you, you will not be able to create connection at Oasis. You think that you're walking in and picking from Barbie dolls or like it's a brothel or that you just walk in and have your choice. And that's not true. It's consenting adults choosing who they want to be with in that moment. And you don't know what that person's going through that day. You can't assume that everyone who's there is even down for play. They may just be there to connect with their partner. They may be there because they're freezing and they worked out and they want to sit in the hot tub in the nude and they don't have access to one outside of Oasis. And you can bring a beer in it, right? Like there's nowhere else in the city you can really do that unless you own a hot tub. So there's so many different reasons why people even go to that place. And it's just wonderful to see a variety. I've met so many asexual people at Oasis Aqua Lounge because of how safe it feels to just express yourself however you want it to be. It's really hard to go from that to the rest of the world.
0: Think about it when you when you go over to uh, people's house for the weekend and they have a hot tub, for example, and, and it's late at night and you've had a couple of drinks. It would make sense to me if you had self-esteem that's healthy, if you had respect for your friends that's healthy, that you could go in the hot tub like a spa somewhere in Europe, but we tend not to do that. But you go to a sex club or an adult club, let's call it like Oasis, and it's just the norm. And it doesn't come with any kind of um, free pass or expectation. And oftentimes I've gone there because I really do like being naked in hot water. I have that cold beer in the rather warm water.
1: My husband and I, when we were dating, we used to live in one area of the city and our rock climbing gym was the opposite end of the city. And in the middle of winter, we would go rock climb. And then on our way back, we would just do a pit stop at Oasis for a soak in the hot tub in the sauna before finishing up and heading home. And it was a really nice way to just connect and be with each other in a non-sexual but sensual experience. We just did this bonding activity of rock climbing. Now we're just relaxing together, giving each other massages. And I have to say that did a lot of good for our sexual connection, even if it wasn't about sex in those moments.
0: Let's talk about body positivity. Let me get more specific for you. Social media, as it relates to body positivity, can throw things out of whack for a lot of people. I love what you did uh, relating to posing. And how an active pose is different than just sort of a casual stance.
1: I do think that there's a high prevalence of a certain kind of body being promoted on Instagram. And bodies also go through trends. So the body that's being promoted is usually very thin, right? That's part of it. And that's fine. That's great. There's lots of really hot people out there who are thin. Um, The post that you're referring to is me and my uh, medium-sized glory, basically saying that even in these poses, Like even in these photos, I am still putting an effort to pose. This is still about flexing my muscles. Everything you see on Instagram, if it's someone's work account or a hot girl account, is absolutely curated. I do not walk around my house looking like I do on my Instagram. And a lot of us need to understand that what you are seeing on Instagram, even when it looks like a normal girl next door, average person account, is absolutely not the case of what it is on the day to day. I once had someone reach out and say, wow, I love when you shoot your hair. You put in so much effort to it. And I laughed and said, my curly hair takes double the amount of effort. Not that you would know. Right. Like how getting curls to look really nice consistently. That is the hard work. Right. Let's not talk about the expensive products I bought just to make my curly hair look wild and free and effortless. So all these things that we think of as effortless beauty or effortless this or, oh, this person is relatable because it's effortless. We're putting in so much effort to what we're presenting online. And so for me, the, the body positivity conversation I think can go in a lot of different ways. There are a lot of excellent accounts they're talking about anti-diet culture. There's a lot of great accounts out there that are normalizing fat bodies and allowing people to feel beautiful in their fat bodies. And there's a lot of accounts out there talking about just like it's also okay to not have certain body parts or choose to alter those body parts. There's lots of people doing that. So I was trying to think, well, what would be authentic to me? And and one of the big struggles for me is that I work out a fuck ton. And yet people still come to me and act like I don't work out because I don't look like a fitness model that you see on Instagram. And that was always very interesting to me because why do we associate certain bodies with fitness? Why are we associating certain bodies with this and that? For me to be able to do some of these poses that you're seeing on my Instagram, I do about 30 minutes of yoga to warm up my spine flexibility so that I can get that twist, get that booty pop, get my leg to do the thing. It takes core strength to be able to balance in these poses. I actually have a client I was working with specifically to take like sexier photos. And he was saying that he's really struggling to do the flex and maintain the relaxed face. And I went, oh, I'm so sorry. You're going to have to start taking Pilates classes. This is effort. And so, I mean, I know this isn't necessarily where you thought this was going to go. But my contribution to the body positivity conversation is that like fit bodies look a very can look very different from each other. Right. Active bodies look different from each other. You don't need to be counting protein macros and working on a fuck ton to be an active, healthy person with an active body. And even if you're not active, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with your body. I just want people to be aware that everything you see online is curated and fake. Even if it's just that I've had laser hair removal or this person has implants or all of us have Photoshopped things or this person's skin doesn't look like that or when I walk around my house, I'm not wearing lingerie, I'm wearing sweatpants. Right.
0: Typically, although sometimes you may choose to wear because, you know, someone's coming over.
1: Absolutely wearing lingerie under my sweatpants to go out and see people because that's a power move right there.
0: And to your point about fitness, I can't really change the way my body is in a grand way. I can become more toned and more fit with the body that I've been given. We all have that opportunity. I loved watching your uh, kickboxing videos. Speaking of uh, becoming strong and becoming more fit, you are not going to change the overall way you look. You are going to nuance the way you look by being able to engage as you do and being able to pose actively as you do.
1: Men who work out and go to the gym are incredibly jealous of my calves. I have calves that are so large, they actually don't fit into boots that go over the calves. And they're like, what did you do for leg day? And my response is genetics. I'm looking at like people with skinny ankles, these men who can't do leg day no matter what. And I'm like, oh, but I would look so much more elegant in shorts if I had your ankles. Right. And there's only so much you can control about your body and your body type.
0: Weightlifting, rock climbing, jujitsu, kickboxing, yoga. You do a lot of stuff to stay fit. But it's not just for the way you look. It's for the way you feel. It's for the way you feel mentally. Correct.
1: Correct. Yeah. I think that when a lot of people work out because they want to be healthy and that's great. But what I realized for me is that when I start doing certain sports, it makes me feel really good. I love learning a new skill. Jiu Jitsu's is great. And my, I make jokes that like I learned Jiu Jitsu to prevent dementia because every time I do it, I feel stupid and like I don't know what I'm doing. And like my body has to make new neural pathways. Like Jiu Jitsu is not an easy one. But I mean, as a as a person who is socialized as a woman, kickboxing is so fun because I get to go and hit stuff. My whole life, I was told, don't hit, be nice, be a good, polite person. Don't be aggressive, right? Going to kickboxing, I was like, they're like, okay, hit harder. And I was like, yay, finally, somewhere where I can just like get to experience being in my body in different ways. And that's great. Same with rock climbing. You have these like tangible goals. You're trying to solve a puzzle with your body. And it's so wonderful when you can do these things with your body that you didn't think you could do before. And that's really fun. I don't want to say I'm ableist, by the way. I know there are people out there who like, can't do these things for whatever reason. But for me, in my experience, like, oh, I love yoga for the flexibility. Otherwise, my back would hurt. Pilates is great to support all these other sports that I do just because Pilates is, is great for that. In a week, I, I would say the post you're referring to talks about like what my actual exercise routine is over the course of one to two weeks to a month. And um, I do it so much because I go crazy when I don't have a place to release my stress. And all of these exercises are a great place to release your stress from the day let it all out, let the hormones flood out, right? There's a lot of research that's gone into stress that's like, you know, the things that stress us out now are no longer like, oh, no, I need to run from a lion. But your body's still responding as if you need to run from a lion. So if you've got a really high stress day, going to do a thing that will release that stress in whatever way, for me, that's the gym, is a great way to allow me to then come back and feel like a normal person again after.
0: Ray, please finish this sentence for us. If you're mature enough to be sexually interactive or active you're also blank.
1: Oh my God, I have so many answers to this one. If you're mature enough to be sexually active, you're mature enough to get tested for STIs or talk about STIs.
0: Tell me more.
1: We all like to think about sex, but we don't like to think about uh, the unsexy parts of sex, and that is getting some sort of infection that you need to go to the doctor for, right? We like to role play the doctor. We don't actually like to make that appointment and go to the doctor. So if you consider yourself mature enough to have sex, then you you need to be mature enough to learn about STIs learn about the updated information and also learn how to have that conversation in a way that isn't going to be hurtful or perpetuate stigma i i hate when people say i'm here looking for a non-monogamous relationship i am clean and discreet you are not ethical if you're saying clean and discreet discreet means secrets secret secret secrets you don't get to be entitled to information and sharing this experience with who you want
0: that's not ethical and clean
1: Clean. Oh my God. Are you saying that more than 50% of the world is dirty? Like over 50% of the adult population has herpes and the other 50% probably has HPV because none of them were vaccinated in school, right? Most of us are walking around with something in our bodies. There is no vaccine against herpes. And by the way, condoms are not necessarily protecting you from either of those STIs. Chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis. People don't realize there's a cure for syphilis, by the way. Guess what? It's penicillin. If you can't share with someone, here's my STI status without being shamed. That's a shitty world that we live in. But not only that, someone should be able to share their STI status with you and you should be able to respond with something along the lines of like, tell me more about that. I don't know if I know enough about that. Or, oh, interesting. What does that mean for barrier methods that we need to use? Saying to someone, when's the last time you got tested? That's great. That's the beginning of the conversation. You can also say things like, is there anything about your sexual health that I need to know, like STI statuses or how many partners you have or anything that would affect my body? I, once again, I'm really careful with language. I have people strongly disagree with me on this one. That's fine. We can all have different opinions. It's a world of lots of different kinds of people with different values. I have tried to eliminate the word risk from my language when talking about STIs. I try to not say risk of transmission, risk, like we don't say risky sex. We don't say high risk lifestyle. Those are very judgmental statements. And when we combine the word risk with sex, there is usually some sort of stigma involved or has been historically. Doctors need to understand that when you say risk of transmission to a lay person, they are automatically going to hear dirty because that's how we were taught. Here's the thing. If you're a sexually active adult, you are going to interact with an STI, either someone with one or one in your own body. So do we throw up our hands and panic and act like children and judge people and cry about it? No, we don't. We're going to be mature. We're going to take a deep breath. We're going to ask questions of our partner. We're going to maybe go to the doctor and get information if it's ourselves. We're going to get tested frequently or as frequently as our doctor tells us to so we can take care of our health the way we would with any other health condition. Which is ironic because I know so many men who avoid going to the doctor. And it's amazing how many men tell me they don't need to get tested for STIs because they, quote unquote, don't have anything. I'm going to tell you right now, there's lots of STIs out there that are asymptomatic. You could, quote unquote, have something and not know because you didn't get tested.
0: Including herpes for so much of the population.
1: Oh, people don't get tested for herpes unless they're having an outbreak and need medication for it. They're not going to get tested otherwise. Or if you are a fighter training for a fight and they're doing blood tests for you for that. Like most people are being tested for herpes because doctors don't think it's important enough. I just am very passionate about, about STI information and stigma. Um, it's actually one of the first experiences that like got me into realizing how we talk about STIs is uh, is fucked up, right? I'm like 20 years old. I get chlamydia and I'm like, wait, what? I trusted this person. I had the conversation about getting tested why do I have chlamydia now? Are you ready? I asked him, when's the last time you got tested? And then I realized after I was blinded by lust and love. And he said, don't worry, I'm fine. This was someone I trusted who I'd gone on multiple dates with. Someone I asked about their background who was purposefully evasive. This was someone that I liked a lot. And this is someone that we were using safer sex practices. And I considered myself worldly and knowledgeable. And then I went to the STI clinic and uh, ended up collecting a lot of pamphlets, right? This isn't like very like, I think I was maybe 19 or 20 at this time. And then realizing that getting chlamydia is not a big deal. My whole life, I thought getting chlamydia was going to be the end of my sex life. It was going to be the end of everything. He called This guy called me six months later, like, do I have to tell every partner from now on that I gave you chlamydia? And I'm like, no. Did you get treated for it? Like, yes, if you didn't get treated, but if you're treated, it's gone. That's like telling someone I had a cold last year. So I'm happy to talk about my STI experiences because when I talk about them, other people start telling me about their STI experiences. And there's just this big culture of shame because it's like no one blames someone else for getting a cold. And yet we act like you did something wrong because a little parasite found its way through someone's genitals to your genitals. Right. Ridiculous. So, yeah, if you're mature enough to be having sex, you should be mature enough to be having these conversations.
0: Well put. Something that I think is integral to moving things forward in a healthy way, and that is community building how do you best community build if you're in the lifestyle as it were
1: i think that's a bit of an interesting topic because people in general in the regular world are struggling to community build right people are feeling more isolated than ever people don't especially after the pandemic have forgotten how to be in contact with other humans you need to just show up you need to show up you need to be a face and even if you're an introvert you have to extrovert at least for a little bit of time Some people will build community through dating apps. They start dating someone, they're introduced to a polycule, they're part of that community. But I mean, I build community by showing up, asking intrusive questions of the people around me, being unapologetically myself, and then things just sort of fall into place from that point. Community doesn't always mean the person that you see every single day or the person that you call. It can sometimes just be like, we're here together for a shared goal. So if you want to build community in the kink world, you have to start showing up to kink parties, kink events, kink spaces. You have to become a regular somewhere. Try out a bunch of different ones till you find one that you like. Check out all of the local munches that are listed on FetLife. A munch is uh, kinky people looking for community specifically and looking to make friends, but not at a play party, right? You need to be connecting with people when you're not in a kink space. You can use dating apps for that to a certain extent as well. You can use munches for that, but mostly you need to show up.
0: Best place we can find you, Ray?
1: Website, sharewithray, R-A-E, dot com. My Instagram handle, sharewithray. You can DM me there if you want to ask more about coaching or keep an eye on all of the offers that I have there. Wife Bay Ray is where you go if you want to hear about the monthly workshop or the monthly workshop topic and also see, once again, photos of my butt.
0: Speaking of your butt and your legs, were you a fan of, uh, and he's still alive, his wife has died though, the great uh, cartoonist Crum, Robert Crum, R Crum. Robert Crumb would love you. You have to see the film uh, called Crumb. It's a documentary uh, some 30 oh, years ago.
1: Make, well, he would love me. I look like a Robert Crumb cartoon.
0: You really do.
1: You've introduced me to my next my next art piece, that's for sure.
0: His wonderful spouse of many years, who uh, factors prominently in the, in the documentary of the um, mid-1990s. I saw R. Crumb uh, as a documentary in a Calgary theater, and my life was changed by his story. Um, His art is is legendary. Anyone listening that's not familiar with R. Crumb, the keep on truckin' guy, (laughs) the doodah man is the Grateful Dead sang about. That's the guy with the big boots and he's kind of cruising down the road. That's the doodah man. That's an R. Crumb thing. He also did the Cheap Thrills record cover from Big Brother and the Holding Company, the Janis Choplin. Yeah, this guy's
1: very You know, now that you say it, I'm like, I actually know the art. I didn't know the name. Now,
0: those were the commercial pieces that he did in life, but most of his stuff, was like Fritz the Cat, and and a, and a ton of other cartoons, like you know, from Zap Comics and so on. This was a guy whose sexuality in his imagination came to life on pages that featured women with with great butts and and thighs, like yourself,
1: right? Do you know the movie Lilo and Stitch? Yes. So he is very similar. I don't know if you remember this, but all of the women in that show had very thick legs as well, mm-hmm. uh, very thick calves. He is another, I would say, modern day illustrator who is drawing women with just very thick legs. And I remember looking it up and being like, these are so cute. Chris Sanders, look up Chris Sanders' artwork. Another one of these like pinup style, thick-thighed babes.
0: I'm changed by you. I always am by great guests. I thank you for being here, Rick
1: Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. She did it right at the Blue hole.
0: the blue hotel podcast just about every thursday at midnight eastern follow listen enjoy rate review share repeat thank you till next time i'm jeff woods